God's word in the sermon text, which is going to be from Hebrews 11 as we continue through that wonderful passage. We're going to be reading verses 8 through 16 today, and this is found on page 1195 in the Bibles in front of you. Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 16. Please stand out of respect for God's infallible word. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. As far as the reading of God's word, you may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the marvelous examples of the saints who have gone before us, including in the times of the Old Testament. We thank you for the faith of Abraham and of Sarah. We pray that you would use their faith now to encourage us, and especially, Lord, that we would see in them the grace of Christ, who is our only hope. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Some of you may know the story of the prince and the pauper, where you have these two boys. Uh, One of them is actually the Prince of England, and the other is this really, really poor little boy. Um, And so happens that they meet, and they exchange clothes, and because they look so similar, people mistake one for the other. And so one of the running um, scenarios that happens in the story after that is you have the guy who's actually the Prince of England, being like kicked out by the guard and then roughed up by his family and everybody and mistreated. You know, there's this incredible dichotomy. Here's the guy. He is the Prince of England. He's being treated as though he were trash. And it's that picture of mistaken identity that is a huge part of the Christian life. Think about Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God. You're not going to find anybody who's higher in dignity than Jesus. And yet, what happened? His own people and the Romans refused to acknowledge him as the Lord of glory, and they crucified him. They treated him like trash, the Lord of glory. Or even think about us 
as we'll see, is a core passage of our, a core part of our passage for today. Who are we? We are heirs of the kingdom of God. Heirs of the kingdom. Way higher than the Prince of England. Okay? We are heirs of the kingdom of God, and yet in our everyday experience, do we always feel like heirs? Do we always feel like the world recognizes us <laughs> for, for who we are? No. So there's this big disparity that's a huge part of what it meant for Jesus to be his, have his experience as the, as the Savior of the world and for us, um, his children. Now, this huge part, uh, huge disparity between the glory of who we are and the humble reality of how we are treated and how we feel most of, most of the time. And this causes many struggles for us as Christians, this huge disparity between who we are and how we are treated. And as we're going to see, just like all we've seen previous times in Hebrews 11, the answer to that disparity, the answer to that problem of why am I being treated this way when I'm actually heir of the kingdom, it is faith. Faith is going to be what enables us to cling as heirs to who we actually are. That's what we're going to see first. Faith is what is going to enable us to accept the difficulties of this life for as long as God calls us to live here on earth. And we're going to see how faith gives us the strength we need to endure as pilgrims and exiles in this present season as we wait Jesus' return. So, as we start looking at Abraham here as an example of this kind of faith, from the very first moment that we encounter Abraham in the Bible, we know that this guy is really, really important. Think about Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Right out of the gate, God says, I am going to make your name great. I'm going to make you a great nation on the earth. And I'm going to make you a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. And then soon thereafter, he says to Abraham, you see this huge swath of land here from the river of Egypt to the river Euphrates? It's going to be your inheritance forever. So here's this guy who's an old man. Staggering things, right, for an old man to hear. Here, here he is, this old man who's, who's being told he has no kids. He's being told, you're going to be a great nation. You're going to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And you're going, your your um, offspring is going to inherit this huge land. And yet, what does he do? It's really hard for him, no doubt, to believe this. It's really kind of crazy to hear these things. And yet, what do we hear in Genesis 15? He simply accepts these things as true. It says, Abraham believed. And isn't that what our definition of faith has been, running through all this the series in um, Hebrews 11? What is faith? Everybody remember? Faith is taking God at his word. Abraham took God at his word, even when the word seemed whew, way hard to believe. And it says, Hebrews eleven eight, that by faith, Abraham took God at his word. What did he, he took God at his word, and it says, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. There's a lot that's really amazing about this statement. But one is this, and, and it may not be the thing that occurs to you right away, but do you notice what he says here in the verses that follow? Abraham, he, he took God at his word, but it also makes clear that he discerned something of the glory of what God was promising 
to him, the true glory. If you read God's promises to Abraham in a very wooden and literal way, you might get the impression that the full extent of what God was promising to Abraham was a really big plot of real estate in the, real, in the Middle East. Well, then you read Hebrews 11.10, which tells us that Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Wow, that sounds like more than just some real estate in the Middle East. And then we read on. We realize that Abraham, in those early days, he understood by faith that the home that God was promising was better than any earthly dwelling. Look at Hebrews eleven sixteen. It says he was looking for a better country that is a heavenly one. So just think about that for a second. The, the land of promise, that was an awesome, awesome gift, right? The land flowing with milk and honey. It's this delightful place to live. But what is this saying? Abraham knew that even that wonderful gift of the land was just a shadow. It's just like the tabernacle. Remember how we heard in Hebrews 8, 5, that the tabernacle, that tent where God's glory dwelt, it was just a copy and a shadow of what? Of the heavenly dwelling place of God. So just as the tabernacle was a kind of this worldly picture, a copy and a shadow, you were not supposed to be like totally absorbed with this like fancy tent. You're supposed to see through the tent to the glory of what it represented, this glorious dwelling place of God in heaven, so also the land of promise always was meant to be this shadow that makes you want to look, well, what's, where's the shadow coming from, right? You see somebody's shadow on the sidewalk. Well, who's making that shadow? The, it was always meant to look beyond that land of promise to the true dwelling place of God with his people, the true outpouring of love to his people, which is the new creation. And what Hebrews 11 is saying, try to get this, what Hebrews 11 is saying is that Abraham, even at the very beginning, he knew that this was not something he was supposed to be absorbed with as an end unto itself, this physical land of promise. Rather, he was supposed to look through the land to what it represented, God's glorious, permanent, everlasting inheritance that was reserved in heaven for him and that would be obtained through the work of the Messiah. Amazing, right? And he knew it. He knew. He was looking forward to nothing less than the glory of the new creation. And what I want you to remember is that that's the same hope that we have today. Remember, as Christians, our hope is not some ethereal kind of like, oh, I hope I get to go to heaven when I die. This sort of disembodied hope. No. It is so much more. Abraham, it says, desired a better country that is a heavenly one, but that doesn't mean it was a like, disembodied kind of experience that he was looking forward to. No, it's a country, uh, this, uh, a, a country that is a new creation country that is characterized by the glory of heaven, which is the love and holiness of God now being apparent on earth. And I just want us to think for a second about our glorious hope. What, what, is, what is it that we're all looking forward to? We are looking forward to the resurrection of our bodies. We are looking forward to dwelling in a glorious new creation that will never perish, spoil, or fade. And what will we do there? There we will worship God. 
without any sin at all intruding into our relationship with God. We will there enjoy a life that is completely free of all of the futility and hardship and heart, heartbreak of this present life. We will have literally an eternity of time to explore the glory and enjoy the awesomeness of who God is and all that he has made. And we will be completely free from any taint of sin so that we will be actually able to be who we were always meant to be, holy and passionate for loving God and loving each other. It is the everlasting city of God. And I wish I could describe it better than I have because it is so awesome. It is a magnificent promise. I mean, what do we say about somebody who's the, chi- the only child of a billionaire? Wow, that kid stands to inherit this amazing fortune, right? Boy, that guy is going to be super rich. Well, let me just say to you, if you are believing in Jesus Christ, you are a child of Abraham, and therefore you are an heir of the heavenly city that God promised to Abraham and his offspring. You are a joint heir of nothing less than the entirety of the new creation. Try to, try to fathom that. Like, you, all of us, we are more wealthy than the most jaw-droppingly wealthy person in this life. And it's not just about quantity. It's about quality. It's about the nature of this wealth. Through Jesus Christ, we are now heirs of what really counts as wealth, which is fellowship and enjoyment of the glory of God forever. I knew a pastor once who used to joke. He said, I have a personal understanding with Jesus that in the new creation, I am going to get the entirety of Montana. I was like, that's pretty awesome. And of course, he knew, as we all know, that we are all joint heirs, not just of the new creation Montana, (laughs) but of the entire thing. And isn't, isn't it wonderful that we have places like Montana that remind us of the glory and the joy and just the enjoyment of what we will have in that new creation where we will share in the, just the abundance and the glory and the beauty with Jesus forever. So, brothers and sisters, this is what it's talking about. It says there's a city that has foundations whose architect and builder is God. This is the better heavenly country that Abraham was seeking, that we need to be seeking, that is our eternal home. It is, in the words of Hebrews 12, an unshakable kingdom that will never pass away. So that's our hope. That's who we are. We are heirs of that, okay? And true faith is going to be looking forward to that. It's going to be laying hold of that, saying, that's mine. That's something I'm going to share with all my brothers and sisters as we are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. But now we need to reckon with an obstacle to this, which is our experience every single day in the here and now, in the old creation. Now look again at Abraham, verse 9. It says, Abraham lived in the land of promise, and get this, he lived in the land of promise that belonged to him. He lived there as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Can you imagine what it must have been like to be Abraham? Like, you own the title, according to God, you own the title to this entire thing, this huge, big land. And how are you living in it? Intense, as if you don't even belong there, as if you're just a passing through. 
<laughs> I mean, even when Abraham, when his wife died, when Sarah died, what did he have to do? He had to actually buy part of the land from the sons of Heth, right? So he could just have a burial place for his wife. And then verse 13 goes even further. It points out that all three of the first generations, not just Abraham, but Isaac and Jacob as well, died in faith. And then it says, not having received the things that are promised. What, what happened? Their entire lives, they lived as exiles on the earth. Though they were heirs of all these great things, nobody recognized their claim. No one honored them. As the heirs of the kingdom, instead, what does Jacob say at the end of his life to Pharaoh? He says, few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. Wow. And what's amazing, and th this, this really blew my mind when I read this in 1 Chronicles 29, that the most glorious of all the Old Testament saints, even they, they who actually were enjoying the land, people like David, you know how he talks about himself? 1 Chronicles 29, 15, he says to God, we are strangers before you and sojourners. It's the very words that Hebrews is using here. We are strangers before you, God, and sojourners, as all our fathers were. Our days in, on earth are like a shadow, and there is no abiding. Wow. So even David, in all his glory, there he is, the king, right? And he's defeated all the enemies, and he's got the land, and he's got, got all these blessings, right? He's not living in a tent. And yet, what does he say? Even so, I am still but an exile and a sojourner here on earth. Why? Because he wasn't yet enjoying the actual city that has foundations, the heavenly kingdom that was to come, and he knew it. He knew it because he was about to die. He knew he was about to pass away. And so what, what can we say about not just Abraham, not just Isaac, not just Jacob, but all of the Old Testament saints? We can say, Hebrews eleven thirteen that they saw and greeted these promises from afar. They saw and greeted them from afar. And all of this prepares us to now understand Jesus, who is the preeminent exile and sojourner on the earth. Again, remember, nobody can surpass the dignity of Jesus Christ. As God, He is the Son. He is the divine Son, the ultimate creator of all things, for whom everything exists. As man, He is the Son of David, and therefore heir of all the kingdoms of the earth. He is the pinnacle of the new humanity. What was His experience? Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He lived the life of a poor man. And then he came to his people, his own people. They didn't even recognize him. They crucified him. They rejected him. They despised him. So there's this massive disparity between who God, who Jesus actually is and how he was treated in his existence on earth. Now you can understand your own position. We also are exiles and sojourners on earth. That's why we read 1 Peter 2. It's basically all about what's it like to live as an exile and a sojourner on the earth. It speaks not just of the, the Savior's suffering, but it says he left us a template, an example that we are now going to follow as exiles and sojourners on the earth. So let me tell you what it's going to be like to live as exiles and sojourners on the earth. Here's what it means. If you internalize that you're not just the heir of all things, but you're also now living right now as an exile and a sojourner, it will mean that you will accept suffering. You will not just suffer, but you will accept 
suffering. First Peter 4, do not be surprised at the fiery trial that's come upon you as though something strange were happening to you. Why should we be surprised at this if we're exiles and sojourners? Or 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Like, that should be our expectation. If you're following a suffering Savior, you will need to suffer too. And a lot of it will be very unnecessary and senseless because it will be because of other people's sin. And so we're expecting that in this broken down world, where the world calls evil good and good evil, we're expecting that they're going to look at us, the heirs of the kingdom, and say, what a lot of trash. In fact, 1 Corinthians 4 says that we are called the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. That's what we should expect. That's what we should accept as a matter of course. We should not be surprised at the persecution. We should not be surprised at the other kinds of suffering that come as well. We should expect as a matter of course, yes, we will need to undergo bodily, bodily harm and bodily disease and all kinds of problems. Why? It's a broken down world, and we are exiles and sojourners in it. It also means this. If you get that you are an exile and a sojourner, it will mean that you're not going to put any hope in the pleasures of this life. What did it say about Abraham? He lived in tents, right? And instead of that settled home for which he came, if he wanted to go back to that settled home, he could, verse 15 tells us, but he didn't. Why? He deliberately did not go back to the more comfortable life from which he came. Why did he do that? Same reason why Jesus denied himself the joys and delights of the Father. Come down into this world, and then when he was here, he denied himself the joys and delights of this world. Why? Because of faith. Because of obedience. Not because the pleasures of the body are bad. No, God created all things for our good and for our enjoyment, 1 Timothy 6. Um, but they're not here for us to worship. They're not here for us to like say, oh, this is the be-all and end-all of my existence. I'm now going to put all of my hope and all of my roots and everything that I have into, into really soaking up this worldly pleasure right here. Now, what should we say to a believer whose whole life ambition is to have a really good time, whose whole hope is, is in, for, for a good life is built around the next movie or the next fun thing or, or whatever. We should say to that believer, brother, you don't know what it means to be an exile and sojourner on the earth. Also, if you are an exile and a sojourner, it means you are not going to put your hope in worldly status. And this is so important. I've just been reading... Um, a book about the history of um, 1800s America and the demise of many denominations, formerly, formerly Bible-teaching denominations in America, where it really went downhill in the early 1800s. You want to know why? It all started with wanting to be respectable in the eyes of the world. This is a huge problem today. So many churches today, including Reformed churches like ours, desperately, desperately want a seat at the table whether it's in academia or the corridors of political power or in the sphere of entertainment and social influence, we want to be the guy or the church that has millions of followers on social media. That's worldliness. It is vanity and it is emptiness and it is the opposite of a sojourner mentality. 
It's not the heart of a pilgrim who is journeying to the city that has foundations. It is attempting to make our city right here on earth. Now, of course, does it sometimes happen that God gives to faithful churches and pastors and Christians? Does he sometimes give that kind of influence to them? Sure. And if we get it, fine. We're going to use it for God. We're going to use it for his glory. But it is not something that we seek. Did Jesus seek that? We should be expecting the opposite as exiles and sojourners, that the world will revile and that they will hate us. They will sweep us into a corner, treat us like losers and those fringy people over there when we actually, paradoxically, are the heirs of all things. So the first point was, look forward, faith looks forward to the joy that God has promised. Second point is this, we also simultaneously accept that the present is not that joy, that we are exiles and sojourners, that we accept suffering, that we forego a life of pleasure, that we do not seek greatness, and we're doing all of that because we love God and we love our neighbor, and we are content with the world as it is, never recognizing the glory of who we are, for such was the lot of Abraham, such was the lot of Jesus, but it's not the way it's always going to be. And that's the last point I want to talk about, is how do we keep up the strength to endure this disparity between who we actually are, heirs of all things, and then how we're actually living right now, like the ways that the world treats us right now. How do we get the strength to not become bitter about how messed up this world is? How do we get the strength not to become worldly, where we just say, I'm tired of waiting, I just want it now? How did Abraham make it all the way? You've guessed it, faith. He kept strong in faith. And this is where I want to encourage you all to become strong in the faith, holding fast to the hope of the inheritance the everlasting city of God, even when all these outward signs were speaking against him, oh, you're worthless, oh, you're obscure, oh, you'll never amount to anything. No, we're going to keep believing what God has said, even when outwardly it doesn't look like it's ever going to happen. You know what Abraham and Sarah were able to do when they had that faith? Verse 8, they were able to leave their homeland, do this thing, didn't make any sense, go to this place, they didn't even know where they were going. Hey, hey, Abraham, where are you leaving to go to? I don't know. I'm just going because God wants me to. And we'll be able to do the same kinds of things, taking God at his word, saying, this is what's right. I don't see how it's all going to play out in the end. I don't see all the details up front. I'm just trying to be obedient. Verse 11 says, as Sarah received by faith the power to conceive. And then, verse 12, God gave to this couple simply because they trusted him. He gave them the, the power to conceive so that then they were able to become this innumerable nation. Like, amazing. How were they able to do that? By faith. They kept trusting that God would be true. Even when everything else was seeming to say otherwise. What's the opposite of that? It's the scariest verse in the whole passage, verse 15. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. Do you know there are some Christians who actually make that choice? Some, at least in name, who make that choice. 2 Timothy 4.10, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. We don't know anything about Demas except that he was a co-worker with Paul. He, for a time, identified as a Christian. And what did he say? What does it say? It says, Demas, in love with this present world, has abandoned Paul 
He just said, I'm done with the suffering. I'm done with the hardship. I'm done with waiting. I want the world now, and I'm not going to wait. He couldn't take being an exile and a sojourner. His faith grew weak, and so did his love for Jesus. And he decided, it's just not worth it. All this suffering is just not worth it. Brothers and sisters, every single time somebody turns away from the faith and exchanges the city that has foundations for just a few soiled moments of pleasure in this life, do you know how it almost always begins? It almost always begins with neglecting the means of grace right here. It almost always begins with just falling off, being committed to worship God, falling off listening to His Word, falling off seeking Him day by day in prayer, in the privacy of your home. And all of a sudden, you start feeling like the things of this world are starting to become strangely bright. And the things of God are just sort of strangely dim. Like, who cares about that? Why would I give up this, this thing I can have right now when there's just this thing, kind of dim, far-off, vague thing in the future that might come to me? In contrast, you want to go strong in the faith, you're looking at Jesus, and you're focusing on Him. And each day, you're renewing yourself with the glory of who you are in Christ and the heir that you are of all things. And each Lord's Day, you're coming here and you're saying, tell me again who I am in Christ. I want to know. I want to see it. Then you will find yourself finding the Lord Jesus becoming more and more glorious. And the things of this world, you're like, why would I exchange Jesus for that? And we become willing, like Abraham and like Jesus, to go out into the void not knowing where we are going, not knowing where God's leading, if only this, that he commands it, and therefore it's going to be good. We become willing to be ignored, to be considered of no account by this world, never in your entire life to be recognized for what you did, never to receive any accolades or any prizes or anything, because you're looking to the city that has foundations. Brothers and sisters, you are heirs of God's incomparable kingdom, and you are also exiles and sojourners. So as exiles, let us keep seeking the better heavenly country. And in the end, you know what will happen? It says it right here. God will not be ashamed to be called our God. For through Jesus, he has prepared for us a city. Let's pray. Lord, we know that the world is tempting and glittery and bright. We do not want to be taken in as if it were the true prize. Help us to seek the city that has foundations. Help us to remain strong in faith. Help us to keep seeking you and your glory no matter the cost. And we do look forward to the day when you return and show us this glorious city. And at that time, we will see with our eyes what we know even now in our hearts by your word that it will definitely be worth it. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will the